Welcome to The Craft. I'm your host, Mae Globus. This podcast is a collection of intimate conversations on artistry, mastery, and life with talented, passionately curious creatives and entrepreneurs. Most are dear friends, some are those I've admired from afar. I hope you enjoy these conversations, this exploration of the humanity that connects all of us as much as I do having them. Thank you for being here and for listening. This episode is brought to you by Before, an incredible new self-care brand that just launched their first products, a line of purifying toothpastes. I'm obsessive about my teeth and brush them usually three times a day, so I'm super excited to be using Before. It ticks off many boxes of what a good toothpaste should be. Their custom supermint flavor actually tastes really good, and the consistency is silky, and at the same time, it doesn't leak out of the tube, which is a total pet peeve of mine. It's also non-abrasive, so it doesn't destroy your tooth enamel. All the harmful ingredients have been replaced by clean alternatives, and their custom blend of fluoride and dentist-approved ingredients totally promotes optimal mouth health. Before also deeply cares about our planet. Their tubes are made from 100% recyclable plant-based sugarcane and creates 50% less carbon footprint than traditional toothpaste tubes. As you all can tell from the show, I'm a huge fan of good, purposeful design, and let me tell you, the design and color palette of these are beautiful. The tube stands upright on your counter and makes your bathroom look minimal and chic. Visit their website, before.com, and enter the code CRAFT10, C-R-A-F-T-1-0, to receive 10% off your entire purchase. One-time use per customer. I'm a huge fan of what they stand for. You won't be sorry, and your teeth and the planet will thank you. As a number of you know, I'm also a certified sound therapy practitioner and founder of Oto Healing, a sound therapy studio and practice. Sound has been a healing modality through many cultures for thousands of years. Oto's approach to sound is rooted in both art and science, the art being the history of sound, the science being quantum physics, biology, brainwave states, and more. All listeners of the show get 15% off their first private one-hour session. Visit otohealing.com to book yours now. Martin McPhail is a special one. His ability to genuinely and immediately connect with people is a rare talent, one of many that he possesses. He's been a musician for most of his life, and after starting a punk band called The Set with his friends and touring cities, they landed a record deal and moved to Toronto. After lessons learned, a record released, and band changes, it morphed into Juno Award-winning Blitz Berlin with Martin and his friends Dean Rode and Tristan Tarr. Together, they now compose music for film, television shows, and trailers, including Top Gun Maverick, House of the Dragon, Bird Box, The Girl on the Train, Blade Runner 2036, and more. He was born and raised in Victoria, a place that imbued a deep love for nature in him. His mother worked at the Institute of Ocean Sciences before leaving to become a stay-at-home mom. She was instrumental in Martin's love for music and sound, enrolling him in a program called Music for We Folk, designed for toddlers to get a basic understanding of music and sound. His father has a passion for astronomy and paleontology, often taking the family on trips to dig at fossil beds. Martin and his brother also grew up practicing a martial art called Aikido, which was the reason for his parents' own meet-cute. After high school, he went to post-secondary for physics and astronomy, before leaving it behind to dedicate it all to music. After founding Blitz Berlin, a lucky break led Martin, Dean, and Tristan to scoring their first film. Then, in 2018, the trio moved to Los Angeles, 
to pursue opportunities in the film and television industry, finding a clever way to connect with the right people and grow their roster of work. Martin, after moving back to BC at the end of 2022, now splits his time between Vancouver and LA. In this conversation, we explore the philosophy of Aikido and how it helped develop his moral structure, nature informing the way he looks at the world and his preference for mystery, an intense chapter in the band and figuring out how to navigate their future in music, the process behind creating a score and staying relevant in the business, how the industry works these days and finding success as a musician, threads of connection between his love for astronomy and his work as a composer, his love letter to music, and much more. Please enjoy this conversation with a wonderful new friend in my life, the hyper-intelligent, insanely talented, innately good, witty, and fascinating, Martin McPhail. Martin McPhail, welcome to The Craft. Thank you for having me. I know. I'm so excited. I mean, you and I are, are new friends, mm-hmm. but it feels like we've been friends forever. It was one of those meetings. Yes. I believe we went for coffee to just, I w- I'm new to the city and wanted to uh, meet you and you by reputation. And it went from a 20 minute coffee into like an all day hang. <laughs> we went vintage shopping. We went to art galleries. It was it. so fun. Very yeah. immediate. Yeah. Great. Very immediate. We've had numerous great and deep conversation since then mm-hmm. and i'm just really excited to have you in here well thank you for having me i uh, as soon as you told me about it i looked up the craft and the the podcast is is really cool you have a bunch of great personalities on here so i'm, yeah, honored, honored I'm to be lucky here. i'm very lucky how are you feeling today i'm good i'm good it's uh it's a rainy morning in vancouver and as i guess is the huge but it makes me feel <laughs> very very in this place very welcome to the city that it is uh this this gloomy on a morning like this, but I, I'm personally a fan of that kind of gloom. Mm. I uh, I was born and raised in Victoria, so I'm no stranger to it. Um, but growing up around that kind of rainy climate, I think I don't know. So much of it works its way into the way that I I make music and uh, and I find weather and storms and stuff really inspiring. So this mm. morning is a good morning for me, even mm. though it is just pouring rain. What is it about storms that inspire you? Mm. I think it's change and it's, I mean, they're just really dramatic too. <laughs> it is one of the things, I lived in Toronto for many years and uh, although I wasn't a big fan of the the coldness of the winters there, um, I was a big fan of in the spring and the fall because the, temp- the temperature change is so extreme. You get these huge thunderstorms rolling in and you, they happen quite regularly. And just, I don't know, the actual energy in the air when a storm is about to come in and the amount of rain and the wind and all that sort of stuff. It just feels like there's a lot of energy in the environment that you can pull from, I guess. Mm. So even mm-hmm. if all it's doing is pouring rain outside, I kind of personally prefer that to a day where like there is no weather. It is something honestly that drove me a bit crazy about living in California. It's like for the first, I guess, two years, endless summer was such a novelty. And then after a while, I just started feeling like, oh my God, I need something to happen mm-hmm. <laughs> environmentally, you know? Yeah, no, I I agree with you. I, I missed the seasons when I was living down there after mm-hmm. university. I just missed the, the change from chilly to, you know, warm totally. to, yeah, so I get that. I get that. 100%. It is funny in Los Angeles when it does rain, which actually recently it, it did, mm-hmm. as you know, it just, you know, rained it's quite a bit. flooding there. And it was just... Uh, that's all I saw on social media. And most people, although they were freaking out about it, they were also very excited because it just never happens. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a dramatic change, you know? 
but nobody knows how to drive in the rain there. So that's, oh, God. that could, that could cause issues on the highway. Absolutely. <laughs> Honestly, it's a spritz and people start driving into, into the ditch. Oh, <laughs> uh, let's go back to Victoria. Mm. I'd love to know more about your childhood. Tell me about growing up there. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, Victoria, in my mind is like, was a pretty idyllic place to grow up kind of, um, I grew up in, uh, a nice little neighborhood in a small little house. Uh, my mom was stay at home and my dad worked for the government. Um, and it was from my memories, just pretty great. A lot of it was just playing outside, especially in BC. You can kind of do that year round. Um, I went to preschool like across the street from my house, which was cool. Mrs. Hills preschool shout out. <laughs> she was amazing. I actually saw her recently. I was back no in way. Victoria. Yeah. And we happened to be walking through the old neighborhood and she was just outside gardening and, Got to say hi to her for the first time in like 30 odd years. That is lovely. <laughs> pretty cool. Um, but yeah, it was it was a wonderful place to grow up. And I think it it very much imbued in me the appreciation for nature and the love of, of the ocean and forest and, and the natural world and all that sort of stuff, which is something that is, is very important to me in my creative process and in my day-to-day happiness as well. So I feel like, yeah. All my memories of growing up, especially as, as a young person in Victoria, were very happy. My mom's great, too, and she was just around all the time. So we uh, we didn't have a lot, you know, grew up without a lot of money or anything, but kind of had what we needed. Um, Tell and, me about your mom. Hmm. Well, her name's Gail, and she, I mean, in my eyes, is pretty much a, a saint. She's just, she always said growing up that, like, from the time she was uh, quite young, she knew she wanted to be a mom, which I just sort of took for granted, I think, as a kid, being like, don't all moms think that? And now that I'm older, I'm like, that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody feels that way. Uh, but she was very much uh, wanted wanted a, a family, um, I think, her whole life. And she worked at the Institute of Ocean Sciences before uh, having us and and left her job to be a stay-at-home mom. Um so there's me and and my brother Adam, um, and she very very caring and also a creative person in her own right. She's always playing piano, and recently now that she's retired, she's taken up painting. Um, and she was also uh, she enrolled us at a young age in a program called Music for We Folk, adorable, uh, in Victoria, which is designed basically for like toddlers, like you know ages three, four, five to get a basic understanding of music and play a bit of piano and do a bit of singing and stuff. But that was my first music experience was thanks to her as well. Mm -hmm. And your dad? Uh, My dad is, I would describe as the strong silent type. Um, He's stoic. His name's Scott. Um, Probably the most interesting thing about my folks, the most unusual thing perhaps is that uh, they're both martial artists and they practice a martial art called Aikido, which is actually how they met. Um, so my brother and I were raised practicing a martial art basically from the time we could walk. So we didn't grow up with um, a specific, you know, religion or anything in the household or, or that sort of structure. So I suppose in place of that was, was Aikido, um, which in my mind is as much as it is a martial art itself, it's also very philosophical in its approach, um, peacefulness and sort of a... What's the word? I suppose, I mean, the actual translation of the word Aikido 
means a way of harmony with the universe. And there's a lot of that very much in every technique in Aikido. The most basic technique in that martial art is called a tenkan, uh, which is basically a simple movement of the hips and feet. And it involves essentially disarming an attacker using their energy that they're giving to you. So you don't learn a lot of attacks or punch or punches or kicks. It's not like a combative, competitive martial art in its, in its original form. Um, so the whole idea is it's a very, I guess, pacifist approach, but more just a very defense, defensive martial art. Mm. And that informs the mindset of the philosophies around it as well. So I think that that was a lot of my, I guess, moral structure growing up. Mm. Um, and I see a lot of my dad through that, that martial art. Like I think of him as this almost samurai kind of a character. And I always have where he's very moral, has a very strong sense of right and wrong. He's very kind and sort of a man of few words who like gets the job done, you know? Mm. Um, but he was, he's a great dad. He was, uh, working full time the whole time we were growing up, but he was around a lot as well. And some of my favorite memories growing up were family trips that we would take, which would always have layers to them. Uh, part of my family, my mom's side is in Edmonton and we would, let's say, do a road trip to Edmonton to visit them, but it would always have this secondary thing, which is that my dad's hobby is paleontology. So we would take these huge detours to arrive at areas that had fossil beds and then spend a couple days there with him digging for fossils and stuff. Um, so it, yeah, it, he's a guy with, a, I think a lot of, a lot of interests. He's very smart. He likes to read a lot and learn about the world, which is something I can relate to a lot. Um, mm -hmm. he also, I think taught me the, the interest in astronomy from a young age as well. Uh, which I'm actually currently borrowing his telescope from the 60s, which I have in my apartment, which I've been no way. using to, <laughs> whenever it's not this rainy, which is rare, I can actually use it to do some observing, which is cool. From the 60s. Yeah. And it's, it's still this, quite powerful. It is. I mean, it's, the modern ones have a bunch of uh, bells and whistles, of course, and like, especially especially digital range finders where you can kind of type in the coordinates of a planet and it'll find it. So it takes a lot of the tedium out of it. But the optics of these old telescopes are quite good, like the actual quality of the glass and the mirrors. So if you know what you're doing and you're patient enough to really like dial in the coordinates, then mm. they're great. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You and I went on a, a walk the other day and we were um, in the forest and we were talking about nature and, you know, spiritual experiences mm -hmm. in nature. And you recounted one for me. Um, you were in Haida Gwaii. Were you in Haida Gwaii? Mm. Yeah, it was something about the trees, mm -hmm. the trees there. Um, and then you had another one in Victoria. Yeah, that's right. Yes, that's right. yes. I'd love to hear those again because I think they're great stories. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Um, in Haida Gwaii especially, that was, that was really cool because that, that was one of these detours, which if you know the route from Vancouver to Edmonton is a pretty big detour because <laughs> you have to go up to Prince George essentially and then take a hard left and go for many, many hours towards the coast. Um, but it was it was amazing. You take a ferry over there. It takes like, I don't know, six or eight hours or something. It's like a whole overnight ferry ride. Um, and then you arrive at this place that feels, or felt to me anyways, like just prehistoric. And there's this very large area of forest um, that is, I believe, untouched since the last ice age, basically. Like since the glaciers received, or receded, I should say, uh, this forest started growing. And it is 
So thousands and thousands of years have passed where there's been no logging, no human interference. And I would describe it as a kind of spiritual place. It was, it was a place with such, <clears throat> such stillness and such sense of this like ancient unknowable history to it. It was just, I, I want to use the word haunting, but it wasn't creepy. It just felt like there was so much knowledge and experience and so many layers of life around that, that you kind of could feel their presence, even if you didn't know what they were. But visually, the most striking thing about that forest is it are these, it's these huge, huge trees that are God knows how old with these giant gnarled branches that are almost the size of regular trees. And on top of them, the bark and moss and everything is decomposed over enough time. It's turned into soil. And so on there, there's trees that are the size of normal trees in other forests growing up out of these branches. And then those ones have the same effect further up. So you end up with very little underbrush because so little light makes it to the forest floor. But if you look up, it's almost like an apartment complex of trees where it's just all these different levels of just very beautiful layered life. So mm. yeah, it was the place that I'll, I'll never forget. I really would love to go back. Did you feel like um, you were talking about, like you feel like you're surrounded by this kind of this, this wisdom. Did you feel like it was something that you were able to like, tap into or was it something that felt more sacred and, you know, it, it meant to be more of a, a mystery not known by anyone. Mm. I think I'm somebody that prefers the mystery a little bit. <laughs> so I don't know. There's, there's a, there's a story I remember being told a while ago that uh, I don't know if this is historically accurate or not, but it was basically about there being uh, dark age peoples, um, you know, long after the fall of Rome uh, who were practically returning to some sort of like hunter gatherer sort of sort of societies or moving around. They were much less technolo technologically advanced than the Romans and coming ac across pieces of the aqueduct and thinking, you know, the gods must have built this. Who could ever build this? This couldn't have been built by people. This must be giants. This must be whatever. And having this almost mythology around what that, what that society could have been that would have built something so mighty because of that knowledge being lost. Um, that I think is how I sort of felt in those woods, not who could have built this, but this sense of this like unknowable, mysterious history that was so much bigger and older and grander than I could ever mm. fully understand. I think I like pulling inspiration from the mystery more than, uh, more than a need to find out every detail, you know? Yeah. And I, I feel like that's, it's a, it's a good way to, to live life. We don't have to know mm -hmm. everything, you know, that mystery is the magic really to use that word. I think so. I, I appreciate this in movies and in film, in, in books and, and TV shows as well. Personally, as, as plot devices, it always bothers me when there's a need to like over explain ideas. And it's something that I really like in my entertainment mm. and in my artists for music as well, that there is this sense of, you know, there's something else being tapped into, or there's something that's obfuscated in a way. Like I, I find that very exciting. Mm. And also you had an experience in Victoria as well, um, mm -hmm. where your mom was like, you know what? You were feeling sick. And she's like, fine, stay home. Yeah, it's, I wasn't, do wasn't, what you even, need to do. wasn't even genuinely sick. I was more just like having a, like an emo teenager day. And I woke up and was just like, mm, today sucks. School sucks, whatever. And my mom, you know, bless her heart was instead of being like, F you go to school. 
she was like, all right, then don't go. And I was kind of confused by that response. And she was <laughs> like, hey, you know, we all need to take a day sometimes. I'll, if they call me, I'll tell them you're sick. But, you know, go have a day to yourself. Do something that makes you happy. Um, which, like, what a cool thing for a mom to do, I would say. And so I went. It was winter. It was cold out. But I decided what I was going to do is just, like, go on a walk on my own. An emo walk, I should clarify. And <laughs> I walked up to an area called Mount Doug Park in Victoria. Which, if you know, Victoria is kind of like a more like a large hill there, but with a large sort of protected forest area around it. I remember walking up through there and having all these teenage emotions and just thinking about, you know, what am I, uh, what am I even so mad about? Like, is school that bad? And I kind of feel like I have my, my will being eroded by being cold and being outside and being lonely and being like, well, this isn't very fun either. And then reaching this point in the hike there where there's this very large tree and stopping under it and almost immediately it started to hail really intensely which happens here in the winter sometimes out of the blue and I remember in that moment it was just a, a combination of my interests I suppose at, at that time but but the sound of the hail ricocheting down through all the branches all around uh, sounded to me like uh, if you've seen the movie Princess Mononoke the Ghibli film um, there's these things in there are these little forest spirits that make this similar kind of sound that sounds like hailstones ricocheting through through the woods basically and it's it was like such, a clacking yeah it's like a yeah. sort of thing <laughs> it's my <laughs> attempt at foley there and it was just one of these magical silly little moments where I'm, I'm making the connection with this this anime movie about the beauty of the forest and i'm also like cold and damp and alone in a forest by my own decision making and I'm not sure why I'm there but then it just sort of felt like this beautiful little moment that was a reminder that these sort of little moments are happening all the time like nature is always doing this stuff there's always something interesting and unseen and beautiful in the natural world I just haven't been paying attention to it hmm. and I think although that sounds like maybe a simple realization at the time Everything felt so egocentric for me. It kind of felt like, well, the world as it exists is what's happening to me. And it was a sort of reminder of this feeling that I, I seek out often, to be honest, which is a reminder of how, how small sort of our perspectives are and how vast the, the earth, but the universe as well, is beyond our, our perceptions and how much incredible beauty and magic is happening all the time, whether or not you're looking for it. And when you choose to look for it, it's always there. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just, just taking all of this in and sort of wondering how you would describe yourself as a child and a teenager. Mm -hmm. I think as a kid, I was just kind of a, an optimistic like space cadet, I think, <laughs> in, <laughs> in both senses of the word. I was very interested in astronomy and I was also just like off in my own in my own world a lot of the time um, before discovering something like music as an actual passion in my life because it was always sort of around but I didn't decide until I was a teenager that it's something I wanted to pursue before that there was always something it was drawing comic books or it was you know building forts in the backyard or something that I would just need to pour all my creativity into so I think I was I don't think I'm all that different now honestly I need projects that are like exciting and creative whether or not they have any real purpose or financial upside I'm always happiest when I have a have a project mm. I think that was with me from a very young age 
Yeah, and I'd love to go into music and how that really came into your life. You mm-hmm. started a band with your friends. Yeah, yeah. As teens. As teens, we did. <laughs> we, there's actually, there's a funny moment that I think back on now. I think I was in grade seven, so it would have been like 12 years old. And at that point, my friend's group, which is my friend Elliot, my friend Jay, we went on to start our, our first band together later on. And the three of us, though, at that time, were really into drawing comic books. We're big fans of comic books. So we would draw our own comics. And we kind of unquestioningly, or at least I did, had in my mind that this was our career at this point. Like we were going to be famous comic book artists 100%. There wasn't really (laughs) any worry about it. It was like, well, we're on that path now. It's going to be awesome. And I remember this fateful conversation, which looking back seems very important uh i was having a sleepover remember sleepovers when of you're course kid? having them. a sleepover with with elliot who's still a very good friend of mine and we're you know in our sleeping bags in my parents basement you know whispering and, and talking about whatever and one thing that he said is he was like hey so like i was thinking if comic books don't work out like maybe we should start a band and i remember my response was like you know, first of all, like as if comic books are definitely <laughs> working out. Why would you say that? But also starting a band, like that's that's the stupidest idea. Why would we do that? And then, you know, Elliot, I think throughout life, intellectually, in terms of his view of the future and his view of the world, I think has always been a, a little ahead of me in this way. So flash forward, you know, 18 months and we're learning Rage Against the Machine songs on our Squire Stratocasters and <laughs> we're, we're on that path. Um, and we played our, our first ever show was at my junior high school's Santa's Breakfast, which for anyone who doesn't know what a Santa's Breakfast is, I don't know if that's a universal thing or not, but basically on one of the last school days before the Christmas break, everybody gets together in the gym, they serve pancakes, and then there will be some sort of performances. And we auditioned with a Christmas song, but we were being punk rock I know this is a podcast, but I'm making the like rock hand right now. (laughs) He is. And we thought we were punk rock. So what we did is we auditioned with a Christmas song, but we learned a Rage Against the Machine song and got up there in front of the school, started singing, I guess, chestnuts roasting over an open fire or whatever, and then went into Rage Against the Machine's bomb track, which to us was just like we were sticking it to somebody. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And I remember finishing it and there was like a full, what felt like a very long pause, you know, a few seconds after we were done where like nobody did anything like the entire audience just didn't, there was no cheering. There was no reaction. It was just kind of like shock. And then I remember this one sort of like tough kid who was kind of a jock just standing up and being like, woo, and like (laughs) cheering. And that was then, you know, there was like a, a smattering of applause and whatever. And somehow this, this, you know, objectively fairly silly act of of rebellion it i don't know it kind of made us um i don't know if it made us cool but it made us something in the school Mm. i didn't really ever get picked on or anything so it was just like the guy who was in a band or something (laughs) like that so i guess maybe it helped in that regard i feel like there that must have been the generation of of young boys wanting to have punk bands because my guy friends in high school also Mm. started a punk band Mm -hmm. (laughs) called cctv and they they Amazing. did perform in the gym. Amazing, yes. And there was this one guy, his name was Manfred, 
and he was like the punk guy in the school, kind of like a loner, you know, he was, he was a bit of the, you know, the outcast. He was the only one that was moshing around and he had like red suspenders underneath it. We went to a private school and so like Amazing. red suspenders and he was just like, going off oh, going man. off at a private school i feel like that's even like more punk rock yeah that they yeah. did that that's great i love it in the end actually manfred ended up being my first high school kiss wow love it rebellious love it rebellious had to go for the rebel yes of course of course <laughs> amazing i love that so funny i honestly i i think about this all the time because there's a bit of around people who are you know my age who are in our 30s who are still doing music there ends up being this bit of a perception, which I hope is totally wrong, that like this process of learning punk songs and playing them in that way or getting these gigs as like, a, you know, when you're like 14, 15, there's this perception that like, oh, that was like our time. And like maybe that doesn't happen as much anymore. I really hope that's not true. <laughs> I hope kids are still doing exactly that. Mm -hmm. I hope if I went to a Santa's breakfast this year, there would be some band, you know, tearing <laughs> it up, learning. I don't know what they would learn nowadays. Something cool. But. Or kids producing music or something, you know. I guess that's a realistic thing too. Different equipment maybe. For sure. And that was certainly something that was not available when we were starting uh was some sort of portable recording setup that was easy to use. Mm -hmm. Like you could rent one from the music store from the Long and McQuaid in Victoria, but it was like a little tape machine, basically like a four track tape machine that just didn't really cut it. So to make a record or to start producing music, you kind of had to work with a producer or hire somebody who knew what they were doing, which is what we did. Uh, nowadays, it's amazing. The idea that you could, you know, if your parents get you a laptop for school, it'll come with software on it, something like GarageBand, where you can get a really cheap little microphone and you can pretty much make a record, mm. which is amazing. So I guess the kids are maybe making music just in different ways, but yeah. I still hope they're sticking it to the man, you know? <laughs> I'm sure there are many, many. They better be. Yeah. Now that I've been in Vancouver, I've been trying to like discover as much of this punk scene as I can. And it, it does seem like it is... It is here. Just a lot of it is underground enough that a lot of the venues never post their addresses for fears of being shut down, <laughs> it seems like, which is awesome and even more punk rock. But like a bunch of these these bands that I'm now seeing pop up through Instagram and stuff, it feels like there is this very cool underground Vancouver punk scene, which I'm I'm happy to discover. Mm, I didn't know that. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, I'll have to, to send you some of these. They're musically all over the place, but there is this just riotous energy to a lot of it that I you know a very cut the lock off the warehouse show kind yeah. of vibe around them which I, I really appreciate cool yeah so in and around this time you met your current well they're your friends but yeah. also your current collaborators Dean and Tristan mm -hmm. yeah so I, I didn't meet them until a little bit later it was mm. I guess at the end of high school okay uh, so the band that I started with my friends Jay and Elliot in in high school was, or in junior high, I should say, was uh, a, a basically, I would describe as like undanceable math rock. <laughs> math rock? The bands, yeah. The bands that we were idolizing were bands like, on the more popular side, something like, I don't know, Tool or Nine Inch Nails. But then we were also listening to a lot of bands like the Dillinger Escape Plan or Kenderia. If you're familiar with any of these, they're very, they're what's called math core, math metal, math rock, something like that, where... It's, a, it's very technical hardcore music where the time signatures are always changing and 
I mean, there's certain Dillinger Escape Plan songs that sound like what happens when like your car engine breaks down, basically. <laughs> like it's that <laughs> random sounding. So those were our influences and who we were trying to be, which is funny on two levels. First of all, very strange choice just in general for starting your first band. But also that music is like the hardest possible music to learn and play. There's never any 4-4 four, four time. There's no easy drum beats. So that was my high school band. We were trying to be as weird and edgy as possible. After learning those initial covers, we wrote our own songs and they just got stranger and stranger. But at the end of high school is when I met Dean and Tristan and Elliot as well uh, was a part of this, this next band, which was called The Set. Um, and so the four of us, myself, Elliot, Dean and Tristan and our other friend Jory started this band, The Set, at the end of high school. And that was kind of my early 20s was just making records and going Touring. on the road. Yeah. 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 And it was an interesting way that you got yourselves to tour. Yeah. I mean, there, especially a band starting with nothing, like we didn't have any connections or, you know, money. <laughs> so there was no way of, especially being from Victoria, there was no like, I don't know, network of of booking agents who were showing up to all ages shows in Victoria to like sign bands or something like that. So we basically just figured out a way to do it ourselves. And especially, so Tristan, who I, I still make music now with now, he's a member of Lith Berlin. He, his kind of superpower with this stuff is when he gets, sets his mind to something, he'll kind of complete it 110%. He's very creative with problem solving and he can become very focused on these things. So he figured out this method through MySpace at the time, I'm aging myself there, through MySpace of basically reaching out to kids in scenes across Canada in every small town, you know, not just the big ones. We're talking a BC tour would be like uh, Kamloops, Kelowna, Vernon, Penticton, Quinell, 100 Mile House, Prince George, like every little town that you could. And Tristan, would reach out to kids in each of these towns and be like, hey, are there shows there? Who do I talk to? And sometimes the answer was yes, and we'd be able to get our way onto a bill. And sometimes the answer was no. And so what he would start doing is teaching kids to put on shows, basically, and be like, we'll travel with our own PA system. You don't have to guarantee us money up front. Uh, if you can just find a venue and handle the venue deposit, we can guarantee that you're going to at least make that back. So this isn't a big risk for you. And then we'll just take a percentage of the door on the back end. We had this whole system going to basically try to set up scenes in towns that didn't have them yet, which was, you know, something that I think is a super creative approach. And really Tristan gets all the credit for doing this because after a few years, what we had was a tour circuit of like 30 towns essentially in Canada that could essentially keep us alive while mm -hmm. touring. So you never got paid all that much. So having short drives between each was also really important. So that was, yeah, I mean, from the time we were like 18 to I guess when we were about 25, we were playing like 100 shows a year, just on the road pretty much constantly. And then you made your way to Toronto because you got a record deal. That's correct. Yeah, we got uh, our first record deal out there after very dramatic ups and downs and being courted by labels and the stuff that every band goes through where it just, you have a lot of big, exciting moments followed by crushing disappointments, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, is honestly a hallmark of working in entertainment in general. But um, we definitely learned a lot of lessons the hard way. And then finally got a record deal in Toronto, moved out there. But it came at a strange time in our mid-20s when both Elliot and Jory our two guitar players were feeling like they didn't want to do this anymore. So myself and Dean and Tristan moved to Toronto and 
we were hiring guitar players for a little bit and calling in friends to help and and sort of there's a few different configurations of the bands there for a bit of the band there for a bit where we uh still try to make good on our commitment to the record label and we still did some touring and we still finished a record that we released through them but you know it, it was sort of a slow process of the band falling apart basically and just reaching this point in our mid to late 20s this kind of crisis of confidence i guess where we were trying to trying to figure out what our path was and this all led to the formation of of the group that we're now in blitz berlin but it certainly didn't didn't seem that linear when living through it at the time it was a pretty tough time because we basically all got jobs to survive and we spent maybe i don't know six months at one point where we just didn't make any music we didn't jam we didn't write which was very uncharacteristic for us at the time and i think it just made us all pretty depressed (laughs) so we ended up having a conversation the three of us which was like if we had a magic eight ball or you know some way of telling the future and we we could tell for sure that we would never make a dollar off music do we still make music together tomorrow and the answer unanimously was, well, yeah, because it's the only thing we're any good at. And also it makes us all happy and we're all a bunch of depressed dudes. We don't. So great. So we're like, okay, well, if that's the case, then if this isn't about money, which it had started to feel like it was with the record deal and all that stuff, it felt like there was this mounting pressure to make a career out of it. So we're like, well, if this isn't about that, if this is about happiness and creativity and, and this sort of brotherhood that we have together and keeping this alive, then well, that probably changes what kind of music we would make as well. You know, we're not going to be attempting to do what we were doing in the previous months before taking that little break, which was like trying to write songs for radio, which was never a strong point for us in the first place. So after this conversation, we just started making really weird music (laughs) because it was just for us now. You know, Mm -hmm. it was kind of a vanity project, but in in a very, I don't know, soul-fulfilling way where we got to experiment. We started making... Well, first of all, learning to record our own music at that time and produce our own stuff, learning to make instrumental music. And this led over those next couple of years to this music getting in the hands of certain people. We were sharing it with a lot of people, but we were fortunate enough that the sort of right people heard it at the right time to give us a shot in this world of of film scoring. So two things happened fairly quickly. or fairly close together, I should say, that sort of sent us on this path, one of which was a music video director named Colin Minahan, who directed a bunch of our music videos. He called us up saying he'd got his first bit of money to make his first movie, and he didn't like who the producers were trying to pair him with. So it was this kind of like, I remember it being a fairly like manic phone call, this, this, I need you to score my freaking movie kind of thing. (laughs) And we were like, no problem, man. We got it. And then hung up the phone and promptly started Googling, like, how do you score a movie? Because we've never done that and had to really figure it out. So we did manage to figure it out with some help from some talented people we had to hire and a very steep learning curve. And then around that time, some of our music also found its way into the hands of a music supervisor named Marcy Buckley in the States who was working on The Girl on the Train. And something that she heard in our sound, I don't know how she came to this conclusion, to be honest, but she thought we would be a great fit for this trailer. 
gave us a shot at it, which evolved into this whole operatic remix of a Kanye West song. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and so with both of those things, it kind of basically gave us a, a foot in the door in the world of film scoring and also opened our eyes to that even being a possibility for guys like us. I think we thought of it like to be a composer, you have to, first of all, you have like white hair and you also like <laughs> went to, you know, Juilliard or some like amazing music academy and you, you know, write your, your, your John Williams basically or something. You write your scores by hand and you're classically trained and we're a bunch of punks who grew up sort of doing everything ourselves. So the, the idea that we could also play in that world was very new to us. Mm. I have so many questions. So I <laughs> want to put a, a pin in, in this and I want to go back yeah. a little bit. Sure. So you were saying that um, all of you needed to take on full-time jobs to keep yourselves going and mm -hmm. you were working at an indie record label. That's right, yeah. Right? And my question here is having been in the music industry as both a musician and also, you know, at a record label, mm. what makes it so hard for talented artists to get a major break? I mean, like there's so much music out mm. there. Like how can one possibly rise to the top to get noticed? Mm. That's a good question. And a question that a lot of people are always trying to solve, to be honest. And, and there's there's not necessarily an easy answer, but the, one of the big things is that the answer has, has changed a lot over the years too. Because mm. the conventional wisdom used to be go on tour, get some buzz, put out a record, maybe make a music video, try to get A&R reps to like come to your show and then they might sign you there. At least that's the way that, that we did it. But nowadays, actually my um, my cousin uh, right now is, is going through this. She's a young singer and is going through uh, a completely different path than we did at the time. Uh, she started a, a TikTok years ago where she does cover songs and and, and also writes and sings her own stuff. Um, very talented girl, and she ended up managing to get uh, something like a million followers on TikTok, which then pretty much triggered like a label bidding war to like sign her essentially. So I think that might sort of be the <laughs> the answer mm. as I understand it now. I'm certainly won't pretend to have my finger on the pulse of of exactly what's happening in in young music and pop music at the moment, but from what I know from a label background, especially. Yeah, labels don't want to take risks because the whole thing is so risky anyways. So you could have all of your ducks in a row. You can have a kid with a million followers on TikTok who's got the right look, who's got a hit song, and it still won't work. So you want to stack the deck as much as you can with every artist. So if you have to choose between two and one of them has 100 followers and like is maybe a pretty cool writer but seems kind of undeveloped and it might take a few years, but maybe there's potential there, or there's someone who's already built a fan base and who can sing and who knows how to look good on camera, also knows how to consistently post on social media and like stimulate an online audience. That just feels like a safer bet. Mm. Even if the less developed artist maybe can sing a little better or maybe can write a little better. This isn't a 100% rule that is always followed, but I would say by and large, labels are often going to take the bet of something that seems proven or just has a better chance of working. Yeah. I mean, it seems like that's just the smarter business decision. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think in some ways, like I'm an optimist with this stuff and I, I feel like it, it to me is a good thing that the way that TikTok or any of these online services are democratizing 
the sort of first steps of your music career, it really is fully in your hands because it doesn't cost anything to have one of those social media platforms. It just is a matter of your creativity and your ability to engage with fans and get people excited. It kind of takes the label out of the equation and why a lot of artists wait a very long time to sign with a label if they do at all. A lot of artists will now structure their deals in a way where they'll only sign for maybe a song or maybe a record as opposed to the old school, you know, many album deal. Unless there's a lot of money on the table, there's not a whole lot of reason to do that because you can still reach your fans. You can still make your own music at relatively low cost. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people have different takes on this. My take generally is a positive one, which is that it sort of puts the power back in the hands of the artist to engage directly with your fans without a label there. And then if you can grow your fan base and access people and you're good at all of these aspects that I've mentioned, the label will follow. But at that point you might realize you don't really need them. Exactly. Mm. You know, if they're, if they're waving a million dollars in your face for an advance and they have all this guaranteed marketing and you can make the deal make sense, like sure. Yeah. You know, make your money. Great. But most labels don't do that. Most labels are sort of farming for artists and they'll sign a bunch and then drop a bunch. And those deals can sometimes be quite toxic for young artists. So for any people who are starting out in this business, it's kind of a gift that you can have full control over your own career. You can make your own music on your laptop in your house. You can learn everything you need to learn about production on YouTube. (laughs) And you can essentially be your own record label up to a point. Mm. You don't really need to sign these ultimately predatory deals. Yeah, my my friend Movi was um, on this show in season one. And um, we were talking about record deals and and contracts because he had just landed one. But Mm. um, to, you know, one of the strengths that he had was that he was also a professional athlete for a really long time. Mm -hmm. So a lot of dealing with contracts. And so he had the wherewithal to know how to navigate all of that. Mm. Um, But not everybody does, especially when you're excited and young and hungry and you just want the chance. A hundred percent. And man, I mean, you know, this is all... Any advice I'm sharing now, none of this was was somehow ordained to me or or that I just knew at some point early in my career. All of these lessons were learned the hard way, the hardest possible way, which was, you know, signing bad deals or being courted by big record labels and, and taking our focus away from from our music. When I think back on so much of our career as a band before this whole career in film scoring started, all of the decisions that served us best were the ones that we fully controlled. Mm. It was setting up our own tours. It was making our own records with our friends. It was writing from a place of sort of urgency and excitement to just make music as opposed to a cerebral approach of, well, we have to make music people will like. It really is true that the stuff that stands the test of time is the stuff that you make from a place of, of honesty and I think that can extend to the way that you think about your music career as well. Hmm. If something is giving you a bit of a weird feeling about a label or about a certain partner or about anything in this industry, you got to listen to your gut because <laughs> yeah. you're almost always going to be right. Right. I mean, yeah. so true of, of all life, right? Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I was looking up... Um, what experimental music means because <laughs> it's I was a like, broad umbrella. it's a very very broad definition but i did find something that i i really liked and i found a different definition that said 
Uh, this experimental music includes indeterminate music in which the composer introduces the elements of chance or unpredictability with regard to either the composition or its performance, which sort of reminds me mm. of like how you talked about storms and like the unpredictability mm -hmm. of it. Um, but anyways, when I read that, I was like, oh, that's really cool. I like the idea of that, the element of chance in music. Mm. And I was wondering what your thoughts would be on that. I think I, I like that. I hadn't heard that definition before, but I, I think I can I can relate to that. I think when I use the term experimental, it is very broad because the music we started making when we started experimenting was the full gamut. It, it, it wasn't, you know, this sort of neoclassical sort of hybrid stuff that we make now. It was everything from, you know, new metal <laughs> to to like rap or to, to R&B or something. And, you know, we were bad at most of it, to be honest. But there was this sense of, of play to what we were doing that kind of unlocked, I think, the parts in ourselves created creatively that like led us to to make better music eventually. Was this period of being willing to make some really unlistenable crap? Because <laughs> like there has to be that willingness, you know. If you're worried that what you're gonna make won't sound cool, then I think you're approaching it, in my opinion, with with a attention or or an amount of um, of control or anxiety that can kind of rob some of the joy from it. Mm. Whereas I think approaching something willing to sound awful is the only way to, to experiment it, to sort of like find your sound musically. Um, so I think we, we did that sort of not knowing it early on in high school and kind of ended up with our, our first band. It was a, a sort of more painful and confusing and difficult process when we did it again in our late twenties to really recalibrate the way that we were approaching music and the way that all of our tastes had evolved and the kind of stuff that that was resonating with us right it's not an easy right. thing to do yeah because there is that evolution of just who you are as a person mm -hmm. which would naturally um you know determine your uh, musical 100 yes i mean mm -hmm. there was there was times towards the end of of my my punk band that we i remember thinking that you know we sort of sound like xyz like these few bands i haven't even listened to those bands in like five years <laughs> but we're still making music kind of in that vein not that there's anything wrong with that but but the stuff that i was listening to at that moment didn't sound anything like what we were making and there there was this sort of growing disconnect so i think part of that part of that experimenting as much as it was trying to like discover a new sound it was also about kind of being honest about like what what we were actually feeling and thinking mm. and and honest with with our ears as well Instead right. of hearing things through a filter of what we're supposed to sound like, only hear it on the level of like, well, what makes me feel something? Mm, I like that a lot. Yeah. So the three of you moved to L.A. in mm -hmm. 2018. Yeah. And um, yeah, this is to like really pursue this this film and television scoring. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it might have been in our second hangout. You were telling me the story. No, it was our first hangout. Mm. You were telling me the story about how, I'm not sure which one of you, are, if, if it was Dean or Tristan, mm. but um, the method by which you guys started landing meetings with industry people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I think is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Are you allowed to share that? I mean, probably at this point. I don't see why not. I'll, I'll use a little bit of vague terminology okay. so we don't okay. get in trouble for it. But essentially... Uh, this is, again, this is, this is Tristan and this is him applying his creative problem solving, um, like he did booking tours through MySpace. But this time the question was, well, you know, we've, we've got this bit of work. There's like a little bit of buzz around our name all of a sudden. 
we need to go to Los Angeles and like try to take advantage of this or it will go away in 10 seconds is what we figured. So we got our US visas and we were getting ready to move down there and then kind of realized, well, we don't have any representation in Los Angeles yet. So we don't have an agent. We don't have anybody looking out for us. So first of all, we should try to find one. But in the meantime, we should also just try to meet as many people as we possibly can. So what <laughs> Tristan did is he, there was a certain, let's say, leak, which published a so many email addresses for so many people throughout the music industry. And Tristan essentially figuring out the projects that we wanted to be a part of, finding out who was involved in them in terms of producers or executive producers or showrunners or anything like that, cross-referencing them with these massive data leaks that had happened and finding their emails. And then not doing anything creepy, just sending them a nice little note. <laughs> and not a nervous note, not one that's like, hey, I'm Tristan from Canada, like nice to meet you, which would get an instant delete. Instead, we would send very casual notes to all these folks just saying, hey, we're in LA this week if you want to grab lunch. And it's the kind of note that just, I think, implies that perhaps we've met at some <laughs> point in the past without saying that because we got a pretty good response rate of people being like, oh, cool. Yeah, that'd be great. Because I think that a lot of folks in the entertainment industry don't want to feel like they don't know, you know, they don't want to admit, mm -hmm. be like, who are you in case you're somebody? It's kind of better to just take the meeting. <laughs> right. So. And so, you, they probably meet so many people that they're like, so oh, I probably just forgot who this person was. A hundred percent. They meet people all the time. They, they do this. They do this so much. And, and, you know, we didn't have any, uh, any experiences where we showed up and they were mad. We always just had nice lunches and then we left and we knew each other as well as they probably assumed we did in the first place. Totally. <laughs> so yeah. this was our kind of hack. This was our way of, of breaking into that industry in the first place. Um, and we are lucky enough to have an agent in Los Angeles now who, who really actually knows everybody and sets up these meetings for us and, and all that right. sort of stuff. But at that time, yeah, I mean, we were three punks from Canada that had no connections whatsoever. And this was our way of making them. It was our way of making them. And it led us to some crazy places. God, like we were like, on the Fox lot, uh, sitting across from a guy named Anton Munstead, who was their their head of um, their head of music at the time. Anton's an amazing guy. He's Boz Lerman's music guy. He's done all of Boz's films, including the recent Elvis one. Um, he's just the coolest guy. Not only did he respond to our email, not only did he have us in there for a meeting, but then we he basically asked us a bunch of questions, which we just answered honestly about the whole approach we had taken to emailing people which he thought was hilarious <laughs> so this actually we actually met him before we had our u.s visas we had gone down for a quick trip using this this whole process before moving there um he we hit it off well enough that his signature is on our visas he actually helped us get into the country in the first place he was no like way. you guys have got what, <laughs> you, it, yeah. what it takes you know uh, so he, yeah, he was, he was wonderful. We met a, a lot of, a lot of folks like that who were very excited and very supportive. I think people appreciate when you take, uh, when you take initiative in those sort of things. Yeah. You're just kind of fearless in that. Yeah. You do you have, have, I mean, do you have your... to show up in these meetings and be like, Hey, so good to see you again. <laughs> no, I see that. I feel like it's a fine line. Cause I would never want to like be like lying, lying, you know, it's more just like, at that point, you sort of say, hey, and you like shake hands. You don't really say, good to see you again. Mm -hmm. You're kind of already in the door. Right. So, yeah. you know. It, it Just carry on the conversation. Exactly. 
it, yeah. it never really uh there was one time i won't mention the name of, of this fellow but it was a, a fellow at, at caa and we were in the top of like their tower which is you know all like the entourage looking stuff and we got in the door and he sat down and he was like so you're you're hans zimmer's guys and we were like, no. <laughs> and then he was like, oh, but, and then he sort of like, it clicked for him. Oh. He just made an assumption, I think because our name with Berlin sounds German because we just worked on the Blade Runner short. Right. And Hans was scoring the actual, like the full 2049 Blade Runner film. I think he had just made the connection mentally and just been like, oh yeah, you must be part of Hans's camp mm. because you're German or something, which we're not. Um so we were kind of like, no. And then he kind of let out this heavy <laughs> sigh. just like, oh, all right, well, you're here. <laughs> what do you want to know? And so we just kind of asked him questions for 15 minutes before he kicked us out. Oh my that God. was the only time it sort of backfired. But it felt like a very funny Hollywood moment anyway. I don't think he held it against us. <laughs> well, it's really funny you mentioned Hans Zimmer because I was um, watching a few videos this morning mm. of Hans Zimmer talking about how he scored so many of his his films mm. and um, the first one I watched was how he um, scored Dune which was really amazing really really cool mm -hmm. I mean I anyone who's interested in sound that please do watch that um, and then the second one was him going through his timeline of movies oh, and cool. what he scored and uh, it was really interesting he was talking about how he scored the Lion King mm. and he said that you know, at first he was sort of like, I don't know if I want to do this cartoon. I've never done an animation before, mm -hmm. so forth and so on. Um, but then as he sort of sat in it, he realized that this was a story about grief. Mm. And that was kind of where he anchored and started to build from. Mm -hmm. um, and then with Inception, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Christopher Nolan was like, I really want, like he had a note of like, he really wanted that deep like brass. So then he had an anchor for that. Mm. And then for Gladiator, um, as he was like going through the story, he was like, oh, you know, this really needs a female presence. So that's mm. why there's like that vocalist that's in the in in the score quite right. a lot. It's and that his wife is what's driving Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was his anchor to build from. So I'm curious about your guys's mm. creative process and if there is an anchor that you guys work from or where do you start? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Together. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think I, I can relate to that approach a lot. I think that is very much part of unlocking the unique voice in a film because a lot of the, the films that we scored are, uh, are in a thriller or horror or sci-fi kind of genre. And I think it would maybe be easy without having some critical thought applied for our scores to end up sounding kind of similar. You know, if it's a movie where there's a ghost in a house or something like that, then, well, it's a ghost and it's a house and it's maybe this like evokes a lot of the same sort of score touchstones, but we really don't want to be creating the same score again and again and really be finding sort of the unique core to each story. And there always is one and there's a reason the story is being told. And I think that is absolutely something that we, we latch onto. Uh, our process with films typically is... Ideally, we're brought on in the phase when it's just a script. They haven't started shooting yet. And we can have a conversation with the director early on and ask all these sort of questions. And typically, directors are very passionate to like almost a neurotic degree where they'll, they'll talk your ear off about all the 
the subtleties and what this film is really saying and why it's going to be so special. So after that conversation and reading a script, what we'll then do is we go away and we write what we call sketchbooks, which are basically vision pieces for the film that aren't written to picture or anything. They're more based off of like what you're talking about, the overarching emotions or sometimes uh, certain character themes or, uh, you know, if there's a lot of action in the film, there might be like, oh, well, this is what the action should feel like, whatever. Not to picture, just experimenting. And we start sharing these with the director early on, just based on the script. And then that starts a conversation between us where they can be like, oh, I love this, but like this doesn't really feel like my movie. And we can sort of hone down those sketches. So by the time they're shooting the film, then typically the director has already been listening to our sketches and then starts actually cutting to them in the temp music. So by the time we have a locked edit and we're able to do what's called a spotting session where we watch through the film and make detailed notes to the time code on what should be happening musically in each moment, we already have such a musical vocabulary together. So at that point, we can dive in and and usually get fairly close on a, a first pass. There's not a lot of surprises at that point. So all that comes down to that very important initial conversation where we read a script, we all get a feeling for it, and then talking to a director in depth about the emotions that they're bringing to it. That's kind of that's kind of our our process, and and whether that is a larger emotion like something like grief or or something like having a, a female element in the score, those sort of things might come out in that conversation. They might not. They might be left for us to to explore more. Um, but there's actually there's one that we're working on right now. Uh, a film called Puppet Man, which, or The Puppet Man, one or the other. And it is uh, directed by a guy named Brandon Christensen, who we worked with a few times. He's a great director. And this film, I won't spoil anything about it, but it, it, it kind of has, as a female main character, there is sort of this almost Carrie-ish thing around her where when people are, are mean to her in some way, basically they die or something bad happens to them. She starts to suspect that this is like her causing this to happen basically. And it, it goes, it goes deeper and darker from there. But one of the touchstones throughout is she has these little flashbacks to when she was a kid and it's these shots of this little girl and she's like locked in a room somewhere and you don't really know what that's about. So our original passes of the sketchbooks were approaching this in a bit more of a, we sort of know what, what Brandon's tastes are like. And so we're approaching it in this film score way that I think was maybe a little more, a little more of like a just textural horror approach. But then it was actually Diener, so Dean Road, another member of Blitz Berlin, who brought up the idea of the core of this being this female story and having this female vocal be like an anchor for it. And so pretty late in the process, after we already had some approved sketches, we just sent this demo to Brandon of this very haunting sounding solo female vocal, which is very out of the realm of anything we've scored for him before. It almost pushes it more into like a, I don't know, Danny Elfman or Tim Burton-y kind of world, if you know what I mean. Um, and right away he latched onto it. I was excited about it. I was like, oh my God, yes. Like this is sort of the, this is the unique thread of this. This is what will make this score feel personally like it belongs to my main character as opposed to being wallpaper or something, you know? So... Mm. So those those moments when when they happen are wonderful, and that's something we're always searching for in a script is is an anchor, sort of an emotional center that the whole thing orbits around. Right, and that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I was really surprised to learn from you that there's film and television show scoring, but then mm -hmm. there is this world of scoring 
trailers, movie trailers. Yeah. yeah. And that they're two different totally. entities. 100%. Yeah, yeah, which is you do a lot of, of, of work in, in that area. And just to give you a shout out, I just want to like talk about some of the things mm-hmm. that you've scored for. So you mentioned Girl on the Train, mm-hmm. House of Dragon, Bird Box, I think I read yeah. somewhere, uh, Top Gun Maverick, and you did the full score for Blade Runner uh, 2036, Nexus Dawn. That's, yeah, that's amazing yeah, in that... the time that you guys have, have been around and, you know, and you're doing more. But yeah, I was really surprised about those two different industries. I would have thought mm-hmm. they'd been interconnected and that yeah sure yeah one team would be doing both yeah that's what you would think and and they are obviously they, they work intimately with each other but but the trailer houses themselves are are essentially like large advertising agencies a lot of them employ hundreds or even thousands of people and they essentially exist as this entire separate ecosystem in in hollywood where there's a bunch of them they are very competitive with each other and their jobs is exclusively to cut trailers and advertisements. So they don't edit films. They don't do any of that sort of stuff. And most of the time, the big studios, there's some exceptions, but for the most part, none of them cut their own stuff either. They'll always go outsource to these, the trailer houses to do it. So it's something we didn't know either until our first experience with the girl on the train trailer was that there is this whole separate, whole separate industry with all different people that you need to know and music supervisors and, very different approaches to the way that those things are written for is, is nothing like what film is written for. It, it feels more like working in advertising than it does scoring a film. Um, but it is, it's chaotic. <laughs> it's, it can be a lot of fun. It can be stressful for sure. Um, but we were fortunate enough getting in with girl on the train in the first place to have a, a foot in the door with movie trailers, which to be honest, while we were building our, our narrative resume in terms of film and TV and, and more like feature length scoring stuff, uh, movie trailers kept us alive for a long time because they, you know, those more artistic narrative projects don't always pay the most. Um, whereas movie trailers, even though it's a, a completely different approach to music can, can really keep the lights on sometimes. Mm. Um, and they can be a lot of fun too. It's just a, it's a completely different way to write music. Mm. And you guys still write music. I mean, you're writing music for the work that you do, but mm. you guys have also put out albums and you guys won a Juno in 2021. Yeah. For yeah, that's right. Movements 3? That's correct, yeah. That's awesome. How Thank did you. that feel for you? That was, yeah, that was exciting. After the slog of the <laughs> early years. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was exciting. Absolutely. We're very grateful for that. And it was honestly a massive surprise. There was not a not a bone in our bodies that, that, would have thought that we would possibly uh, have won that even getting a nomination was very surprising but especially the actual year that we we won that in our category usually it's it's other instrumental musicians of which you know they're not necessarily household names instrumental music isn't isn't in the same class as, as pop music necessarily in terms of public awareness this year that we were in there Bruce Coburn and David Foster both put out instrumental albums. <laughs> so they were in our category. Wow. So <laughs> there, we were just like, there's absolutely no way that, that we're winning this. And I mean, you can see the, the clip online of us finding out and there's some genuine like, what? <laughs> so it was but, it was, cool. but it was you. You it guys was, in the end. Uh, which is very cool. And it's pretty amazing. Um, especially I think for our for our folks as well. Like that's, you know. Not that, not that they don't think that we have real jobs, but that's definitely <laughs> one of the, like, oh, your job is actually, you know, real. Uh, where I can tell my friends about it and they'll know what I'm talking about sort of thing. So yeah. That was nice. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, making those records. So we've made a, a few sort of records as a band, like with vocals, and then we've made three instrumental records, movements one, two, and three. And all of them, to be blunt, are just kind of vanity projects. Like with the way that we create nowadays, our main focus day-to-day is scoring films and, and television and video games and stuff. And it's a job that we feel very fortunate to have. And we really enjoy it most of the time. But ultimately, it is still, at some degree, sort of a client services sort of job. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but when it's at its best, it feels more like a collaboration. Sometimes it feels more like you're hired to do a job and you're punching the clock a little bit. But what we end up feeling oftentimes when we've scored several films in a row and we're very much in that headspace is just the need to do what I was talking about earlier, which is just to play, just make stuff that isn't for anybody, that's kind of for ourselves, that's just something we want to hear. So that's how these records have each sort of come to be, is almost this like necessity. Hmm. Um, there's, you know, it's not like there's a, an, an outcry or like a public demand for us to make these. <laughs> they're not our, our main our main focus, but the they're records that we, we yeah, yeah, they're for us and they feel we feel very proud of them. So to be to be nominated or to win an award for, for any of those was was very shocking for us and is definitely very, very exciting. One of many. <laughs> yeah, we can, uh, we can hope. I <laughs> to suppose. come. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about space and planets because I love yes. it. I know you love it. You went to university for a few years mm-hmm. for physics and astronomy. And those are, you know, that's a huge passion of yours. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering, is there a thread of connection between what you do as a composer and the way you feel about astronomy mm. and space and planets? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I think anybody who ever listened to my my punk band would tell you, well, yeah, definitely, because <laughs> it was like, I think pretty obviously in the lyrics a lot of times, there was a lot of very uh, universe uh, sci-fi kind of themes in the stuff that we would write about at the time. But in terms of the way I make music currently, I would say that there's more of an emotional connection. I I find that like if I'm you know taking a, a break to have lunch or whatever and I want to put something on, I'm almost always putting on a documentary about space. The actually my favorite YouTube show is called PBS Space Time, which I highly recommend watching. It's great because it tackles a lot of stuff about modern astronomy and physics, but in a a way that you can understand without having a degree in it. Um, but I find I find that w- when I watch these things, it, it's like microdosing that feeling we were talking about in, in the forest where it's just the reminder of like how vast and complex and mysterious the very real natural world is you know this isn't a this isn't a fantasy these aren't these aren't made up photos from the deep universe like all this stuff is really existing right now all around us we just don't think about it all that much so I think watching those things makes me feel that way and when I feel that way that's where I draw a lot of creativity from as well I think is is through my art being able to explore that kind of innate mystery in life. Hmm. I just had a thought right now as you were talking um, but music is both technical and spiritual Mm -hmm. and in in a way like you know the space in the cosmos is too like there's some mm-hmm. technical things about it like this is you know how many billion light years we're away from so-and-so planet um but again there's something so spiritual about the mm-hmm. cosmos too i absolutely agree and I, I think that 
I think that there's a lot of aspects of life that have that duality in it where there is some maybe, you know, physical, mathematical, analytical truths. And then there's some spiritual and emotional truths as well. Mm. Um, and mysteries on both sides. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, tell me what it's like composing at the level that you guys are now with two of your high school friends <laughs> and all of these years together, mm-hmm. um, you're still doing this. It's, it's been a ride. Um, what would you tell Dean and Tristan right now about the way you've seen them each evolve mm. from the time you met until now? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I feel very lucky in many regards to work with, with both of them. And, you know, it's, it's a gift in itself to work with two of your best friends doing anything, I think. Uh, especially composing, I think, is typically a pretty solitary job. Usually it's one guy. Maybe you have hired help and stuff. But, but as we've now learned, it's not as common to have three people doing this job together. So I feel very fortunate that it's maybe not as solitary as it would be that I get to make music with two people who I care about and deeply respect. But also in my view, and maybe I'm a little biased on this, but I feel very fortunate to make music with two of the most talented people I've ever met. Because these guys not only were great when we were all just playing one instrument back in the day, and Dean was a fantastic bass player and Tristan was a world-class drummer, uh, but the way that we've all had to push ourselves and learn new instruments and and broaden our horizons in terms of the music we're listening to and the levels of uh levels that we're able to bring to the music that we make right now i've watched these guys grow and grow and grow as we all have from being punk kids from victoria to now all day every day working at a a fairly advanced level in recording software and and just making music to film i feel very proud of them but i also just sort of feel like I don't know. Sometimes I feel kind of in awe of them. <laughs> I feel like my well, one thing that I bring to this group is a, a lot of the outward momentum, I think. And I am when it comes to goal setting or when it comes to talking to people, when it comes to having ideas creatively and bringing spontaneity to stuff. But there are so many parts of this process that I just am not strong at or they are much stronger at. And a lot of the time when we're all cooking something up together, I'll get a mix from Dean or from Tristan or some ideas or whatever. And I can listen to it basically like a fan <laughs> and just be like, oh my God, like I love what you're what you're doing here. So I think there's, there's it's sort of beyond friendship really. It is uh, brotherhood. I think of the two guys as brothers and I have a lot of respect for both of them. I feel yeah very lucky to be able to work with them every day. Hmm. What's the greatest gift that music has taught you? Like what's your love letter to music? Hmm. 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 That's a good question. I have to think about that. I, I guess in terms of making music, I would say making and listening to me are like fundamentally different experiences, even though they're inevitably connected in some way. But in terms of making music, music has become just a canvas for me and a vessel for creativity and for projects and for this constant outpouring of like, I want to make stuff. I want to have I I very much feel a a necessity to do that. And music has become that vehicle through which I can explore art and I can also, uh, yeah, I guess have something to to give back to the world and to, while I'm trying to explore my own little corner of the universe, mentally and physically. But listening to music, I think, has, I think it 
has taught me a sense of stillness that is hard for me to accomplish in day-to-day life usually i think especially there's a lot of music i listen to now that i really love um that i i tend to seek out which tends to be very calming music whether it's ambient music or it's a lot of like nils from sort of neoclassical piano stuff i love if i'm having a hectic day at some point i can put on one of those records and like go for a walk in the rain and nothing else kind of matters at that point it, it it centers me and it creates a sense of stillness so i think that yeah i mean music can evoke so many different emotions but i think that's one that i go back to the most regularly is almost as like a mini meditation or something mm, a little bit of peace yeah i think so mm. and i mean it's funny you know a complete contrast to that while i was driving down here this morning i was listening to some of the new spirit box record which is a super super heavy band who are actually from the west coast as well um sometimes in the morning that just feels right too you got to listen to some metal <laughs> <laughs> so i guess i guess it's all over the place but yeah and my final question that i ask everyone mm. with what you do what is it that you want to leave behind in the world hmm That is a really good question. I suppose I would like to leave behind both some sort of insight that maybe wasn't there before, which I think is a honestly a very lofty goal. There's been a lot of very smart, very talented people who have tried to understand the world around them through art over time. If I could add even, you know, one letter or one word to that conversation, <laughs> I think that would be pretty cool. But I also think that there's this, this natural aspect of making music, music that you're ever going to record and that people are ever going to hear, that is reaching out for sort of a sense of connection. So I guess what I'd like to think I'm leaving behind with my work is music that people can listen to and can connect with me with on a certain level and can also maybe make them feel a little bit of the way that I was feeling when I, when I made it. I think that's a maybe a, a relatively a relatively simple goal in that way. But I think that's sort of the goal every time I sit down and, and try to make something. It's mm, so beautiful. <laughs> Martin, always love hearing your thoughts. Always love our chats. So You're... excited you made it into, into the <laughs> studio. I didn't think you'd say no. <laughs> no, I mean, absolutely. You texted me and I was like, what? Really? Sure, of course. Let's have a chat. If people want to connect with you or with Blitz Berlin, where can they go? Yeah, I mean, uh, we've got a website, which is just blitzberlinmusic.com. Um, but also probably Instagram is the best way, which is just at blitzberlin. Pretty easy peasy. It's got all work on there. You can message us. You can email us. Um, yeah, I would love to to hear from you. I know a lot of amazing creatives in Vancouver as well have been on this show. And if anybody wants to say hi, I would love to meet you. Love it. Martin, so much love for you. <laughs> Thanks for having me, man. Can't wait for the next hang, which will probably be very soon. Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. As always, thank you for being here and for listening. To learn more about today's guest, visit the episode page for show notes and links on wearethecraft.com. You can find the entire podcast archive here or explore more conversations with past guests on Spotify and Apple. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button on these platforms, including YouTube, to get notified when new episodes drop. Any likes and shares on social media are deeply appreciated too. Sound and audio engineering for the show are by Andrew and Jay Bagaspis. 
All guest portraits and images are by Juno Kim. Appreciate you all and see you again soon.